You're listening to devpath.fm, the podcast about career development for software engineers. Join the conversation at www.devpath.fm or on Twitter at devpathfm. Hey everybody, I'm here with Tang Nguyen, who is the founder of uh, BoltOps. It's a, a consultancy that he runs, and then also the creator of the Jets framework, which is a serverless Ruby framework. Uh, Tang, you want to kind of explain what your day job looks like? Sure. Hi, Jacob. Thanks for having me. Um, yes, let's see. As you mentioned, I run this uh, BoltOps consultancy company right now. It's focused on AWS. So I build a lot of infrastructure code and software kind of for a specific for AWS. Most of my day job is uh, just doing client work. So I do some work and usually that leads to kind of some tools because I usually abstract things out. And so it's kind of cool. I get to work on these tools that I think are needed anyways, and then uh, kind of get uh, work or pay for doing that. So enjoy what I do. Cool. Tung, how did you get into engineering work? Was Was it like something that you went to school and did or was it something that you... Uh, kind of stumbled into? So I think I was always going to be an engineer. Uh, I liked building things when I was younger. Um, I would build like, uh, I wasn't a very rich family, so I would build things that like cardboard or zero cars or something when I was really young. Um, but it wasn't going to be software engineering originally. Uh, originally, I actually studied to be an electrical engineer. So I actually went through the whole electrical engineering uh, kind of life in college. So I uh, wasted my college years there. <laughs> <laughs> oh man uh you know uh that window opportunity like old school says only uh, appears once and uh yep i was in the lab the whole time because uh, i went to uc davis so uh davis has a really good electrical engineering program i think overall to graduate from college you need 180 uh units of credit all right so most majors you also need 180 units of credit but like specific Credits are devoted to your major. For instance, like another major in liberal arts or something, 90 credits would go towards your major, and then 90 credits would go towards uh, like general education. So essentially, you could do whatever you want. With electrical engineering, 165 units were devoted to your electrical engineering major. <laughs> 15 were general. So you got like no life, like like no life. It was just like amazing. Like that's just kind of puts in perspective. But originally, I was like supposed to do electrical engineering. And I actually did that. I got a job in Silicon Valley. I did the whole thing for like two and a half years or so. And then eventually I kind of um, went uh, into this uh, thing called bookstore. I think it was Barnes and Nobles back then. It might have been Borders. Uh, but I went there and I started reading books about software. I was like, you know what? I think I could do software. Uh, and I kind of enjoy it too. So then I started doing that. I started building websites kind of for fun. So I went, I don't know if I can say I got like formal technical training on uh, computer science because I'm not a CS major. Uh, I was kind of late to bloom there. And then uh, um, then eventually I just kind of picked up books at bookstore and started studying different languages. Then I started diving into coding more and more. And I was like, okay, what am I going to do now in my life? I was like, oh, I could go ahead and do some software. I could try that. So I had a swing at that and I started up in software. Uh, I don't know, about maybe over a, ten, a decade ago. So I've been mm-hmm. in software ever since and I've been enjoying it. So just kind of looking at your background, you had uh, you've gone through like the whole stretch of being a frontline software engineer into like leadership roles and uh, in larger companies and also kind of on your own and in smaller companies. What's something that you 
have found has um, been consistent through all of those roles as, you know, working with technology? Always learning. <laughs> you're always learning. Uh, so especially in the software world, uh, you're always going to be learning something new, I think, uh, especially as your roles kind of change. Um, you, I think with software particularly, you kind of have to go in it thinking, and I read this in an article somewhere. Well, I don't remember the exact article, but you probably Google it like software engineering profession versus job. So I would consider like software engineering a profession, not a job. So the difference uh, in that, at least what the article described was a job is something you go from eight to five and you're kind of done, you go home, you, you turn it off, right? But profession, like Mozart, he was a composer, but he didn't take, you know, his activity as a job. He took it as a profession 24 seven. He was kind of constantly like, you know, his wheels were turning there thinking about his music or whatever. I feel like software kind of is kind of like that. You kind of have to think about it or Maybe you don't have to. I'm sure a lot of people can do software as a job. But uh, I think t- uh, if you really want to be successful, you, you kind of have to enjoy it a little bit. You have to be kind of a masochist. You have to enjoy the pain of being a software engineer in that sense that you have to go in there and you have to learn kind of new things. And uh, I think I kind of went on a tangent here. But <laughs> you asked, <laughs> like, you know, what, what was consisting of about going from uh, what I was, I think, a lead back engineer to eventually vice president of engineer of a company. And, uh, and I actually grew that team from startup all the way to uh, the acquisition and post-acquisition, the whole shebang. Very lucky to have gone through that experience. Uh, what's consistent is just like, yeah, I, I was learning. It was just different roles and different things you have to do. Um, another thing that was consistent was always a lot of hard work. You always have to work hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, nothing, uh, nothing really <laughs> special there in terms of like, oh, what's, uh, what's, what's consistent between those roles across the 10 years of experience I had there. But definitely it was a great experience. Uh, one of the best experiences in my life. I think it kind of made me who I am today, uh, at least part of it. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, one, one thing I want to kind of follow up on that is, do you recall like your your first experience transitioning from a individual contributor, software developer, to being a leader or a mentor? Do you know when that was? You know, I, I wish I could say the titles kind of came after the fact. Mm-hmm. So it, it might have been like, and I think maybe my boss at the time, he 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 actually told me this. He's like, oh, what I did was I'll put you in the role and I'll have you do it for like six months to a year. And then I'll give you the title. I was like, oh, right. And I was, for what's worth, when you're working in a startup, you're just too busy. You, you don't have, you know, kind of even time or energy to think about, okay, how do I get to the next step? And I wasn't even trying to get the next step. I was just going, okay, this needs to be done in order for company to be successful. So I'm going to go do this. I didn't really kind of think strategically about my career, uh, like uh, like maybe what I would recommend for people. <laughs> I just kind of head first dove in and just like, okay, I need to work hard to kind of fix this problem that we kind of have right now. Whether it was like an engineering problem, whether it was a management problem, like I just kept on like, okay, what do I need to do next? So I, I can't really say, like, I don't know. I guess if you look at my titles, right, it was back engineer, then something like engineer manager, then director, and then vice president. So maybe a year before each of those roles, this was when I started transitioning. Uh, and I, I think also because, so in my previous company, Bleacher, I was actually the first employee ever hired. It was the mm-hmm. first employee and then there was four founders. So just being like an OG, a original like that, you just, you're already kind of put in the leader, 
shift position, whether or not you think you are or not, because everybody's going to come to you asking, like, how does this work? And you're like, oh, it just works that way because there's always <laughs> that way, right? So you, you don't really know. And it's like, it, and when the titles were given, it's like, okay, that's great. It was on paper, but it's something I already had been doing. Um, so I don't know. At some point, we grew to more engineers. Eventually, I managed, I think, 35 engineers. Uh, at some point, you know, I started thinking like, okay, well, how can, you know, I start doing what managers do and making sure the engineers are happy and all that, uh, not just happy, but productive and everything, making sure that they're set up for, for a path of success and all that kind of stuff. And eventually, um, yeah, I just had to do all those things. I don't, I can't pinpoint a time. I'm having some trouble answering that. I just don't know exactly when just kind of happened. So how did you handle that like responsibility of people just coming to you and asking, how does this work? Do you have any advice for people that find themselves in that kind of team role? Sure. So um, what I would do is like, I was pretty hands-on because uh, I still code it actually all the way to the VP level, uh, which is not common, I don't think. Um, I actually would pair with them or I would uh, get a guy who knew that area of the system and have them pair with them and then uh, immediately start documenting <laughs> because like we were in a startup environment it was like run 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 all the time so most of the time when you're a startup you just kind of get the thing working and then eventually later when you have time you kind of go document which i i know you know let's say somebody's coming from a bigger company somebody who's coming for a company who's kind of had all this figured out already they, it might sound like kind of crazy <laughs> to be operating that way but that's kind of how startups kind of operate and a lot of companies are startups so uh, actually, that's not that uncommon. It's just the big company. You you have a lot of things in place that people, people will complain about big companies, but big companies, they have a lot of good things in place that sometimes people, I think, take for granted. So um, we just, what we did was in order to answer questions for people, we get, I would either pair with them, we'll get somebody to pair with them, and then we start documenting that process. And then the next step was once another engineer came in, that person would, from the documentation, you know, hopefully explain that to the next person and then. That person, uh, if, if it wasn't good enough, then we would go fix that documentation. But because at some point you kind of have to, you kind of have to scale out. And you have to get the knowledge that's internalized in your head out to and distribute it to the team. From someone who's been in a kind of executive leadership role in an engineering team, how do you disseminate that knowledge at scale? How do you get a team of engineers to share the internalized knowledge they have? You know, so it's a mixture of things. Okay, so. Uh, a lot of people think, you know, processes are bad, but some processes are good. <laughs> documentation and explaining like how things work via documentation is great. Having uh, run scripts, uh, just even though maybe they don't understand everything, but they understand like this is the process. If this kind of bug happens, like what do you do to recover from that? Because having some documentation. So that's kind of one part of it. The other part about it is actually finding the right people to put in those places of kind of leadership and putting them in a position of uh, uh you know, some responsibility there and ownership and have them kind of run that section or the, those, those people they're managing and kind of really kind of give it to them and like start. So I started changing my language with, with a lot of people. Instead of saying my team, I started saying like, you know, Bob's team or Adam's team or whoever's team, right? You give them the ownership. So then they could basically take it on the reins themselves. Right. But you have to, uh, you have to be wise about it. Like you can't just go, okay, you know, this is what I need to do. Documentation, then, you know, put the, you know, give management positions to people because you just kind of give out blindly. Guess what? You're going to get the wrong people out there. Then that, then what's going to happen is it gets even worse. <laughs> it just gets more disorganized. 
So, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you have to make, you know, it's a judgment call, some wisdom there and, you know, and you, you have to find the right person. And, and the, 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 the way of finding out the right person is would generally most people in team, like are, if they are see that person as a, somebody who's kind of leading, then that probably makes sense. Right. Uh, I mean, you, you kind of have to kind of get the feel there. And so mm-hmm. sometimes what I like to do is actually I like to do one on ones, but skip level one on ones. So, you know, there's, let's say, engineer, manager, director, VP, right? The skip level one-on-ones are VP will not go to the director, VP will a manager, or director will go to the uh, engineer, right? So then you get mm-hmm. a, a little, like a little closer to the beat of kind of what's actually happening, right? And then, I mean, and then I took, you know, there's a book by, um, I think it's called Walking Management by uh, the guy who ran Hugh Packard. And what he would do is he would like, I think HP grew to such a large company, he would walk from literally building the building every single week. And I think his, his EA didn't even know which building he would be that week because he would just sit himself at a different area every single week. So I kind of did that too. I sat in a different role for a while, like a role of like desk, right? And it's like, okay, I happen to be here. So I'm be around like people here and I'm going to kind of figure out kind of what's going on just through osmosis is kind of being there. And then I'll just kind of move. I mean, we weren't that big to have buildings, but we were big enough to have, you know, 35 engineer roles of desk and all that. So there, there's different things you could do there. Hopefully that <laughs> makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Kind of more focused on your career path. What significant changes have you noticed going from being on a team like that to going basically the consultant route? How has that changed your day to day? Uh, yeah. So what I do today, I'm doing the consultant with Bull Ops, is a lot different from running a team, uh, especially at the end of that. Uh, end of that role that company so um like completely different um eventually when uh i was running that and uh the 35 engineers or so my life became like a life of meetings it was like like i remember this was really funny uh i was walking around and i happened to walk past the uh um one of the office manager's desk and uh she was talking to like one of their like co-worker and she had looked at some she had, they had somebody's calendar open and they're like wow, that's a messed up calendar. Look at that. It's all meetings back to back. And then I walked up. I was like, oh, that's my calendar, right? It was just like, <laughs> it was just like, yes, that's what your job is. Kind of like a manager's time. I think Paul Graham writes a good article on this. Manager's time is kind of like 30 minutes block increments or hour block increments. And meetings for them are, as long as the, their efficacy of meeting is, is decent, they actually, they're useful in that, in that sense. Because that's kind of the role is to make the sure that the you know the engine of the machine is kind of running smoothly um but uh like and before i was doing more management like most of my time was actually half day chunks right you're giving a task or you have to figure out how to solve some engineering problem you're not going to solve it in 30 minutes you're not going to solve an hour you need to like sit there and kind of think about what direction you should even go that might even take a half a day right and then like you, you, so interruptions aren't great for software engineers so now uh i'm doing a little bit of both. Uh, so I do consultancy. So when I remember I'm uh, on the clock and I'm, I'm doing work, then you know, I basically try to have uninterrupted flows of time. So that's when I, I'm actually doing uh, software coding, which I, I really love. Uh, but then I don't do this management as much because there's not a lot of people managers like me and, and uh, another uh, person that's helping. Um, but like, there's not anybody management, there's no management there. So I don't really have to do meetings all the time. So it's, Completely different world. However, because it's my own company and it's like a, essentially a startup, uh, 
you do things that normally at even like a not even a big company but a small startup you that are taken for granted like let's see the printer's broken who's gonna fix the printer oh that's my <laughs> job right it's like oh yeah I, I better go fix that i'm like who else can fix that i'm not gonna get you know whatever it fix it i am it right and i was like okay mm-hmm. and they get to figure out everything else time management essentially right so i have a mixture of kind of both uh and so my life is a lot different now but at the same time as a, co- a contractor um you have kind of a lot of control over your time like this is something that you know especially as you get older like control your time is something that it's amazing right like i could drop my so i, I like to drop my kids off to school uh one of the reasons because my wife is not early bird but Honestly, I would like to drop all my kids to school too, because I think that's cool and that's important and all that, right? And so mm-hmm. when I drop my kids off to school, like uh, I think it's actually kind of funny. So my the, te- the teachers there uh, sometimes uh, they run to my wife and is like, "What's the deal with her husband? I see him dropping off the kids, but he's always in his pajamas." <laughs> and and I, I think they think I'm a homeless bum, you know. And so I was like, oh, "No, no, 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 no." Uh, and then sometimes I'm like busy and I have to have a meeting in the city or I'm traveling or whatever. So then my wife needs to drop off the kids. And then uh, I think the teachers are just probably looking at her like, good, she finally left that homeless bump. Right? <laughs> so it's like I can control my time, right? Like I, my commute is literally I roll out of bed and I'm kind of in front of my office and I'm kind of, I could do what I, I, I want. So that control of time, it, it's, it's pretty nice at the same time. And I feel like I'm just like rambling on and on to answer this question. But at the same time, you know, you do get cabin fever, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you sometimes I would just call people like, hey, what's up, man? You know, um, because <laughs> you don't have like community of like engineers around you just like, you know, shooting the breeze, trying to figure out whatever. Right. Um, so there are pros and cons of kind of what I do. It's a lot different, though. It's like there's no comparison. It, it r- Running an engineering team on a, a company at that point was pretty large. Uh, it's a lot different when you're kind of essentially contracting, freelancing or running your own consultancy firm. Mm-hmm. Kind of leads me to ask what. uh what strategies do you use to manage your own time that you didn't really have to implement when you were working with a team? So this is kind of crazy, but I feel like I've always worked a lot. And I think there are some people out there is like, oh, you know, like they only work a certain amount of time. Maybe I just haven't figured it out, to be honest. But for me, I enjoy what I do. So let's see, Thomas Edison, once he was asked, because his work schedule was kind of crazy. I think for 40 years, he worked seven days a week, 10 hours a day for 40 years. And the interviewer asked him like, dude, like, what do you think about your work schedule? He's like, what work? It was all fun, right? So (laughs) he enjoys what he does. I am fortunate enough in life that I get to enjoy what I do. Like I enjoy most parts of what I do. Like there's always some stuff, you know, but generally I enjoy what I do. So you say, how do I manage my time better now versus a consultant? Say, well, like, even when I was working at a company, it wasn't like me just shooting the breeze, water cooler talk all the time. I would work a lot, and especially that startup. Like, uh, I, 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 let's see. Even when I was vice president, like I said, I did a lot of software coding still. What my schedule was like was like basically from ten all the way till five was meetings, thirty minute meetings, one hour meetings, lunch meetings, blah 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 meetings. Okay, then I would go home. And then like it would start around like eight after dinner and stuff like that. I would go from like, I don't know, eight or nine till two or three a.m. where people would be like, oh, Tom doesn't sleep. No, no, no. I slept. I just controlled my schedule because I was in position to uh, and I was able to shift my time. So that's how my work ethic was when I was at, at Bleacher. 
today, my work ethic is still pretty much the same. I, I work all the time. Uh, I, I want my company to grow and everything. Um, for a while there, my schedule was I, I would actually wake up quite early, like 5 a.m. in the morning and kind of start there. And then uh, I would actually go sleep pre uh, pretty uh, early because, you know, it just, your body got tired and all that. But I found myself way more productive in the morning. But I say, I say for a while there because uh, I did that for three months and I, I thought that was like the most productive. I was really kind of happy during that time. Actually, I know most people when they're here, they're just like, no, that's insane. That, that does not happen. I, I enjoyed it. I like, that's just maybe the way I am. But then we kind of went on traveling and stuff like that. We went on a bunch of vacations. I think we literally flew all the way around the world. We did a trip from, I think, Hawaii, then to South uh, Korea, and then to uh, Europe somewhere. Then literally, we took us ourselves all the way around the globe. Um, and uh, after that, my schedule has been like back to a t uh, pretty typical schedule, like 8 a.m. or something. Or well, I still kind of wake up naturally around 7. And so... Anyway, I drop on my kids and then I start my work day. So my, my, my schedule hasn't been that kind of uh, rigorous. Um, but how do I manage my time? I don't know. I, I think I just, uh, I, I write down my goals and then I just go, okay, this is what I need to do. And this is how much time I have in day to do. It, and then I just go attack it. Hmm. Not really great answer. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious. Um how do you set goals? Do you set goals around deliverables? Do you have like personal objectives that you want to accomplish for yourself or for your company? Do you have like a, a framework or a structure for doing that? Yeah, I've studied a lot of different ways to do this. <laughs> I feel like um, still haven't perfected it, but maybe it's just one of those things where you just really never perfect, but you just kind of continuously work on it. So yeah, I kind of set together kind of quarterly goals. So I have like three, three things, three, three things I want to achieve by the end of the quarter. All right. And then, uh, then I have more like daily tasks, not necessarily goals, but like things to do. And then I try to make sure those tasks align to like those three major things I kind of want to do by the end of the quarter. And, and then sometimes, especially when you're kind of making up and you're just like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. Let's just make up. Uh, guess what? You don't really align yourself to that. And then like, why doesn't that align? Right. Then you evaluate that. And I, I don't, I wouldn't say I, I systematically yet evaluate it. Especially uh, unless it was that, that one period of time when I was actually waking up pretty early. <laughs> then I think I was being very systematic. Then like, again, yeah, that's why I was like, oh, okay, this is awesome. Um, but now I just more free flow. And then at the end of the quarter, I'm like, okay, well, you know, I didn't really do exactly what I thought I was going to do because these other parties kind of came up and that's fine. And then it was like, but I still review kind of what I was able to accomplish. And I was like, okay, I'm still pretty happy with what, what I've been able to do. So when you... We're in a leadership position. What was some advice that you found yourself repeating a lot, especially to people who were more novices or intermediate in their career? Oh, yeah. So this definitely was a large part of my time. So a junior person, right, mostly would come up and it's like, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> like, uh, like, you know, point me in a direction. I was like, you know, it's the most important part when you don't know where to start is actually just to start because <laughs> you have like analysis paralysis as engineering. You're just like sitting there like, I don't even know. It's like, you know what? Just go with it and just trust that instinct. And if you kind of go with it, you're going to eventually figure out that, look, because I've started, I was able to figure out that I shouldn't have gone this direction at all versus kind of sitting there and kind of not doing anything. So one bit of advice I give to kind of more junior dudes is just like, just start, just, just to start. And then, 
just start writing something down, just start writing. It doesn't have to be code. It could be your thoughts on like what, how you want to approach this. And, right, and then start coding a little bit. And then also maybe strategically do maybe if you're really having trouble starting something, do the e- like the easy thing. And then immediately, once you start kind of getting a little bit of groups, do like the hardest or the second hardest thing of the project that you don't understand yet. So that way you kind of remove uh, unknown unknowns. Because there are three things. There are no knowns. There are no unknowns. There are unknown unknowns. And uh, the unknown unknowns, you kind of want to remove that early in the project just to kind of mitigate some risk. So that's how I will kind of, that's some one advice I've given to uh, more junior engineers before. Um, but more generally, like, this is not really my advice, but this is advice I've gotten from uh, a lot of people uh, accumulated through the years, I guess. But I tell people, look, the people who are going to be successful, whatever they do, like, there are kind of four pillars of success. The first one, huh, let me see. I haven't said this in a long time since I've been freelancing for myself now for <laughs> two years. But okay, I can do this. Okay, so four pillars of success, right? So some people are just naturally smart. Some people are just really kind of, they're born naturally talented. Like, for instance, some people are born good looking. I don't know who's good looking nowadays. Movie stars like Brad Pitt, maybe. So some people <laughs> are born looking like Brad Pitt. I'm sorry, he was born good looking. What can you do? Some people are born tall. Okay, you know? Some people are born pretty with like, you know, pretty good uh, uh, brain capacity there, I guess. Okay, so that's one pillar of success, right? And there's like, you know, there, there's not much you could do about that. Other pillar of success is like, uh, I've, I've seen people like, they, they work hard. Like if, you know, if people, if you're born like naturally good looking or like smart, but you're lazy, <laughs> do you think you're gonna get far? No, you're not gonna get very far. You know, you gotta put hard work into it, right? You, you definitely gotta put hard in work to it. Right. And then the third pillar is like it's experience, like like it's, it, and that just comes with kind of time and kind of working hard. Right. So if you do those two, one, two, three things, you're going to be pretty well positioned, be successful. And then the fourth pillar, I say it was like, honestly, actually just talking, networking and actually forming relationships. I think relationships in life are very important. And I think if you do those four things, you're generally, you know, going to put yourself in a path to success at whatever you're kind of doing. Which which one of those areas do you think an individual can give themselves the greatest advantage, and how do they do that? Oh, I think that's number two, hard work, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, number one, it's there's a natural talent you're born with it, right? And some people are naturally born, you know, into better situations. Uh, that's just the way it goes. Uh, and then what was number three? I'm trying to remember the <laughs> experience. Well, that takes time, right? And mm-hmm. so I think number two and four. Those are probably important to answer that question. Okay, to answer your question, <laughs> number two is hard work. Like maybe you can't control the timing or luck, right? Like, so I, I had a friend. I ran into him in the mall. Let's see. I ran in the mall, I don't know, four years ago. And uh, he, he was like me. He went to the same high school. I think he was a, a year younger than me. And then he actually had been through like five, I think it was six startups in the span of five years. Like imagine that. You go through six startups in the span of five years. So all those startups failed. <laughs> so that's pretty tough on somebody, right? Like that's gotta be tough emotionally. I was like, you know, I mean, I was very lucky. The startup I was at basically kind of was a success story. And, you know, it was only one out of 10. So it, it, it's, it, you, you, you have to be very lucky or fortunate. But anyway, so he kind of told me, he's like, my dad, I told, uh, my, he was like, my dad told me if you work really hard, right? You'll be successful in life, right? And he's like, and he was actually pretty like upset about this. And he was like, well, you know, that's not true. You know, mm-hmm. darn it. You know, and I was like, 
Wait, 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 dude. Let me qualify that because the, the moral from that is not like, oh, if you work hard, you're not going to be successful. No, no, no. That's not the moral. <laughs> the, the, the moral is you have to work hard so you're positioned to be successful. When that door of opportunity opens, you're ready to walk through it, right? Because opportunity, there is luck and timing. There always is. Like some people actually don't, you know, some people just really luck out. But I think if you're working hard and you go day in, day out, and you're just putting always the effort in, when that opportunity presents itself, you're going to be ready for it, right? Versus somebody who hasn't been practiced. And it's kind of like maybe like a professional sport, like football or something. If you practice and you throw the ball, or like Kobe Bryant, he had a really good work ethic, right? And, and that's eventually one of the reasons. And Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan is another good example. Like he, they put a lot of work hours in there, right? But then once it was time for like the finals game or whatever, they were ready for it, right? Uh, but you, you have to like, you, number two is definitely there. And then, you know, number four is, very important too i'm finding out more right you should network you should like take advantage of the fact wherever you live you know if you're uh, you know there's a meetup or something go to it meet people try to meet don't just be the engineer in the corner so i want to ask a, a question maybe the answer is hard work maybe that that covers this but uh <laughs> how do you how do you keep up to date with technologies and as a consultant specifically how do you decide where you're going to invest your time Sure. So for me, I, um, so when I started the consulting, I sat down with a bunch of people and one of the people I sat down with, he, uh, were kind of like two, uh, people I see, uh, as, as friends, but they had been running their own, uh, consultancy for eight or nine years successfully. And they, um, they're, they're not in the same space as me. They're, in, uh, they're iPhone developers or, or Android developers. They're, uh, app at their app shop. And, um, Ask them, okay, tell me what not to do and tell me what to do more <laughs> successful, right? And like, you know, this is like something I've, I've learned later. I was like, wait a minute, maybe I should ask people, right? Like, I don't know everything. Uh, and um, they told me actually to, uh, they, they told me a lot of really, really good things. But one of the things that actually to told me was uh, to actually go cloud agnostic, right? Because then you can get more clients. But uh, I actually chose the exact opposite. So I didn't listen. So I don't know why I told that story, but. They actually, I took, they told me a lot of good advice. And because of that, I, I avoided a lot of different mistakes and, and like the, the way I just run the consultancy. But uh, that one part of advice, actually, I didn't, I, I didn't follow. I was like, no, I think I'm going to go uh, very specific to one thing because there's software is such a diverse and big field, right? There, you, you can be the jack of all trades and master of none. So mm -hmm. I was like, uh, I think I'm actually just focus on kind of one cloud. So, and then the clouds I was familiar with was AWS. And I, I still think it's, it, it's kind of far, uh, uh, a little farther ahead than the other cloud providers right now. So I was like, okay, no, I'm actually limit kind of what I focus on. So I, I focus on AWS. And then how do I kind of stay up to date? Well, I basically I was like, okay, well, this is going to be important to me. So I'm just make my life all about AWS for a while. So I essentially, uh, read all the user guides um or not all i i read the user guides kind of uh to keep up that's one of the things i do i subscribe to all my news feeds to all the news updates uh let's see i i go to events if there are like meetings and stuff and conferences if there are so by basically putting myself in the middle of the ecosystem and surrounding myself in it i, I kind of should just learn a lot through osmosis at this point uh i just kind of learned okay well i didn't know about that i knew about all this stuff but then yeah, i didn't know about that and then I actually, because I run consultancy that's focused on AWS, when I do work, I'm learning, right? I'm learning exactly mm -hmm. what I need to do and, and, and then it kind of reinforces that cycle. And I think that's one of the reasons why I've, I've gotten uh, more better and better at kind of what I do in this space because nobody knows everything. Nobody knows everything. 
like I've talking to a, a lot of even like solution architects and people that work at AWS and they're just like, dude, there's just so much stuff out there that it's like impossible for any person to know everything. So yeah, you can only kind of do your best and kind of focus on what certain areas that you uh, that, that, that you find interesting, I guess. Mm-hmm. It basically goes back to hard work, I guess. Nobody <laughs> yeah. is here for, for anybody who's listening. <laughs> I, tend to, I tend to like to ask people that come on my podcast about their experiences with the idea of imposter syndrome. And I'm kind of curious, uh, have you or do you currently deal with that? And uh, what ways has it or has it not affected you? I feel like everybody has dealt with imposter syndrome at some point in their life. Uh, I'm not uh, uh, an exception that. I think during my career at my last company, I went through that uh, a couple of times. And I think it was really interesting because I didn't know what the term was. And then um, mm-hmm. I was having like a struggle with, with a certain phase of the company where um, I had to actually go out there and basically hire a bunch of engineers. And then during that phase of the company, I sat down with actually uh, one of the engineers and he actually is like, Tom, have you ever heard of imposter syndrome i was like what's that he's like i think you have it i was like i have no idea what that is what is that and apparently it's like when you don't realize that you're really good at what you do and you don't give yourself no credit <laughs> so uh, i think this happens all the time especially with engineers because with engineers i tell my wife our job is kind of difficult but i'm not it's not just you know our job but a lot of people have this uh this situation too where they go to their uh their day job and they have to they're handed another situation or a problem that they've never seen before or never dealt with before, never solved before, and they have to go solve it, right? With engineering software, because software gives you so much rope <laughs> that um, that you you really kind of sometimes, you know, have to solve these problems over and over. And then like, you know, that can be demoralizing sometimes where it's like, oh man, I just like spent a lot of energy and time effort like this last month solving the last problem. Like, that's why I like said, you better like enjoy what you're doing when it comes to software. Like, Mm-hmm. I, I guess I'm not really pulling bunches here and, and people trying to get sovereign insurance like, no, don't do it just for the money. Okay. Do, do it because you enjoy it too. And yes, it does pay the bills very nicely because, you know, it, it, it's, 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 you know, high, it's a, you know, high demand for this, for this job. But so imposter mm-hmm. syndrome. Yes. So I, I've gone through that before. How do I de- deal with it? Uh, you know, you, you go to your support network, you talk to your friends, you talk to, you know, your, your, your family. Um, and then I think you just have to kind of go through the motions sometimes, at least for me, <laughs> I just have to go through emotions. You just like, you know, I don't know what the seven stages of recovery or the seven stages of like denial are or whatever they are, but I guess there, I'm guessing there's gotta be some stages of imposter syndrome where it's like, no, I have it. I don't have it. Okay. And I'll have it. And then you have to go through some low or whatever, but kind of going through that. And then eventually realizing later, like, wait a minute, uh, I actually know what I'm doing more than most people because. I try to follow, you know, what people say online on, I don't know, I Combinator News or Reddit or Hacker News, right? And it's like, wait a minute, these guys are just like, maybe the person who screams the loudest in the room is not always the wisest person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe that person is not the person that actually knows, right? Maybe it's a person that even is like presenting a conference doesn't know what they're talking about, he or she is talking about, you know? And, and this, is, this is very common. It's like, wait a minute, it's like, you know, and, and then you just have to be logical about it. It's like, okay. So, you know, there's some things I know really well. There's some things I don't know really well. And there's some things in between. Let me be logical here. And as I've kind of grown as engineer, as I've grown as a person, I've, I've, I'm known more and more and more. So, you know, I don't really have, you know, I, I actually do have the skills and maybe I'm not actually really imposter, right? So you kind of, you have to be rational, but you have to kind of go through that irrational 
state first as imposter syndrome. Maybe you just like to burn through it. Like it, for me, I had to actually go through the whole thing. And then I was like, okay, now I understand that a lot of people, maybe a lot of people just fake it. You know, maybe in my mm-hmm. you fake it, they make it. And then he's like, wait a minute, am I just surrounded by a bunch of fakers? Right. <laughs> I, I don't know. But sometimes you're not because sometimes like I meet people all the time. Where I was like, holy moly, this guy is like ext- ex- extremely talented, extremely smart. And what? He's under 20? <laughs> what, like, wait a minute. <laughs> what have I been doing for the last 10 years, right? Uh, yeah. So, you know, it humbles you. Software engineer humble you and all that. Um, so, uh, don't know if I really answered your question about imposter syndrome there. But, yes, I've had it. You kind of, I think you kind of have to go through emotions, how you deal with it. You have to lean on your family of support, right? Your, your network and all that. And then you kind of talk through it. And then eventually, hopefully, you come to the realization yourself. Because no matter... Here's the thing about imposter syndrome. When you have it, no matter what anybody tells you, you're like, no, you really know what you're doing. You just don't believe them because by <laughs> definition, that's imposter syndrome. So, uh, yeah, so you have to realize it yourself, right? And then you just, that's why I say you just maybe you just have to go through the motions or something. Maybe you do have to take a break or something, right? So as someone who's, who's dealt with that and who's kind of come through it, when you had people working for you, uh, how did that affect like your your position as a manager, knowing that some people that are working for you might have been feeling that? Uh, maybe I think it's a healthy dose to have imposter syndrome with your manager versus a manager with like an overinflated big eagle. <laughs> head can't fit through the, 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 the you know dual doors or French doors. Um, but I, I think uh, imposter syndrome, like I didn't have it maybe during that time as a manager. Uh, maybe there were some points where I should have, right? Because when I was a younger manager, I, I, I was not as good as a manager as when I got more experience, right? You just, there's some things that kind of get to your head. Uh, so I wasn't perfect. Um, but I think imposter syndrome will humble you. And because it humbles you, I think you're going to probably treat more junior guys or guys below you a little bit better. Uh, so, so I think actually that's a good thing in, in that sense. Um, but at the same time, you're a manager. You're not there to, you know, have psychotherapy by your employees or by anybody else. You know, you're there to lead the team, <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, in that sense, imposter syndrome will be great for you, right? Uh, so, it, it, you know, you have to kind of be a, a manager that is kind of approachable, right? But at the same time, that's respected, right? And actually, I don't think I'm in this, I don't think I'm in the perspective or the uh, philosophy or a manager. Respect is more important than, you know, uh, being approachable. I think both is equally important. You know, and so uh, I think you can do both. Uh, so uh, hopefully that answers that question. Also, <laughs> how imposter syndrome helps you become a better manager. <laughs> you think that was the original question? Because because I interview people who are really successful or at least very experienced and have have done a lot of really cool things. It's easy for people to listen to this and think of you as you know, kind of a a hero or a person they put on a pedestal. So to humanize you uh, and everyone I interview, I ask to share something that they consider themselves to be bad at. Uh, time management. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still working like crazy. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, let's see. No, there's a lot of things I'm bad at. So I, I would consider myself. I like languages that are not compiled. I found mm-hmm. it, was, it was really funny because when I was an EE major, I took assembly and actually, that was one of the few classes I not only got A, but I got A plus in that class. I really enjoyed it because with assembly, you only have some well-defined things you can do with it. It's a very limited language, right? So that's pretty low level. However, 
I would say I'm not very good at what I would consider lower level languages and like scripting languages like Ruby. So I like interpreted languages more than compiled languages. Not that I haven't done plenty of compiled languages. It's just, it's not something I enjoy as much. Uh, maybe it's because I like the more instant gratification of uh, just uh, changing some interpreted code and just, you know, then writing the script again. And yeah, I, I know you can have scripts and stuff that kind of make that faster and all that. But um, so I wouldn't say that I'm, I'm very good at the kind of lower level stuff, like in those languages. Um, you know, I mean, I understand the concepts, but I just don't play in those languages as much as I do interpreted languages. I just don't find it as enjoyable. So I wouldn't say I'm very strong there. Um, there's a lot of things in this space that, I mean, you know, people refer to the full stack engineer. Okay, you know the full stack. Well, re do you really know the full stack? Do you know the entire seven layers of ISO? Uh, I, I didn't have to say IS, IS, o -O -S -I layers, right? I was like, uh, I've read about it before, but can I get take Wireshark and pull up and then, you know, figure out my packet sizes are small, smaller if I'm using like this one protocol versus other protocol? I don't know. I never really have to do that, <laughs> right? So like those lower level things, I'm not a as good at. So, you know, there's some kind of weaknesses there. Um, but I think everybody's going to have some weaknesses and it's fine. Um, there's only so much time in day. So um, just based on that, what's what's your you know strategy for dealing with... Uh with things that you think you're bad at, with with knowledge gaps or whatever else, <laughs> I, I shouldn't joke, but run and hide. Uh, I, I don't <laughs> like. I don't have. So here's the cool thing about what I do. So DevOps or software, cloud software, right? It's more kind of driven. It's it's moving farther and far away from the lower level things. So I just don't think it's that that important for what I do. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm saying it's not it's not important for what I do specifically run a cloud consultancy business, right? So uh, I'm not actually focused on that much. I mean, you know, once in a while, uh, if I have to do that, then I, I you know, read and research into a little bit, or, you know, I find an, another person who's better at that than me, then ask them questions, right? Or just have them do it. Uh, so that's how I kind of approach that. But like, it depends what you're trying to achieve. Like, you know, I, I'm running a, a AWS, essentially a cloud consultancy company. I, I don't, I mean, those lower level things are important to understand conceptually, but you have to do it day in, day out. Not really. I'm writing software and tooling. And oh, and, and going back to your actually other question, your question is like, how do I keep up? Right. So I basically, I said, I read a lot. You know, I surround myself in, in kind of the community, but I also build a lot of tools. I get a lot of enjoyment out of building these tools because they solve a specific problem for whatever problem I'm working on. And then I open source those tools. So open source actually helps me learn a lot and keep up a lot. And, and then I find like once I read other people's open source tools, I'm like, wait a minute, that person did it way better than me, right? And <laughs> I'm gonna start doing that way because that's you know that's just makes more sense. And what was like, it's very rare when I look at my code six months later and don't think, what was I thinking six months earlier, right? So it that that always seems to generally happen in life, and and, and that's fine. Um, but yes, hopefully I answered that question again. Yeah, so I think that that covers all the questions I. I have um before we wrap up i want to give you an opportunity where where should people go to find out more about you tongue sure so my website is bullops.com okay so that's my main consultancy website there you'll see a bunch of tools i've created uh and then there i have a bunch of uh, tools one of them right now is a uh, jets uh, ruby and jets that's a, a site that uh basically is the documentation page for my uh, jets uh framework uh i have a bunch of other tools another one's on ufo that one's called, um, I was very proud of the name there. I was like, I know, I'm going to name a UFO. I'm going to name the command UFO ship. 
to ship the docs <laughs> uh, yeah amazon there so ufo ships so those are some sites there let's see i have a linkedin page i'm kind of all over the place on linkedin now i have twitter small but growing twitter account now uh so oh my twitter handle is t-o-n-g-u-e-r-o-o and i also have a youtube channel now uh, with a couple views <laughs> <laughs> well i appreciate your time tongue okay uh, no problem uh, thanks for having me jacob Thanks for listening to devpath.fm. Want to ask a question? Send an email to jacob at devpath.fm.